Hey, this is John Lee Dumas of the award-winning podcast, Entrepreneurs on Fire, and you're listening to the Excelsior Journeys with George Soroy. Prepare to ignite. So would you say that that's kind of like the lightning bolt moment for you? And that's what I taught myself how to draw, was actually the Little Mermaid, drawing stills of Ariel. I've got better things to do tonight than die. jumped out of his chair and said, who the F is this? I remember walking out of the theater and saying, I'm going to write Halloween I'm rather impressed with your research. Rarely do people ask me about children in the corner. It doesn't have to be perfect, just do it. You know, throw some spaghetti against the wall. This is George Soroy saying to all of you, ever upward. Welcome back to Excelsior Journeys, part of the Once Upon a Podcast Network. My name is George Soroy, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for tuning in for over 200 episodes. It's been an amazing run so far, and I am so thrilled to be able to celebrate this month five years of this show's existence. Even though we did, there was a hiatus from, I want to say, November of 2019 through June of 2020. It still existed. It was still out there. And I was able to jump right in with that season two premiere and just never stopped. So thank you so much for sticking with me, for sticking with this show and for listening to all the new shows on the Once Upon a Podcast Network. I hope you're enjoying all of these shows that are meant to be focusing on inspiring, celebrating, motivating, educating, and even rejuvenating creatives of all kinds. As you know, this is October, and this is a time for Halloween, and it is a time of magic, it is a time of fantasy, it is a, it is a time of supernatural elements, and I am so thrilled to have author Lally Davidson here, because her latest book, Beyond Sight, deals with all of that. This is a, this is a book that is, that deals with a struggle between the privileged and the marginalized with a supernatural uh, element to it that has me really excited to read it. And this is a book that comes out this month. And not only are we celebrating Lally Davidson's latest book coming out, but also the fact that she has also been teaching writing for over 30 years. And anyone who has listened to this show, you know that a big part of why I have these have these guests on is because they're not only making sure to push their push their way through to make their mark for themselves in their chosen field, but they're also looking back to make sure that there are plenty of others that are ready and prepared to step in and follow along with her. And so that is that is why I am so thrilled to have Lolly here. I am so excited to not only hear about her journey as an author, but also as a professor herself. So it is my honor to introduce my guest for this week, Lolly Davidson. Lolly, how are you? Hi, fine. Thank you so much for that really kind introduction. Oh, Pleasure thank to you. be here. Thank you. And thank you so much for, for reaching out. And I feel like almost every week I have to give some kudos to podmatch.com because this was how Lolly found the show. And I am so excited. And I am once again stressing to all of you podcasters that are out there, get yourself on podmatch.com if you are a show that offers interviews for guests, because you find some really amazing people that you probably wouldn't have even thought about, you know, reaching out to. But then when you when you learn about them and you see what what they have to offer, 
you, you immediately know that they're a perfect fit. And that's what's happened with every single one of my guests. And from, from what I know of Lolly, this is definitely no exception here. So thank you so much for getting on to Podmatch and reaching out. How has your experience been on there anyway? You know, I, I really could corroborate everything you said. I'm, I'm pretty new to it. And so far, it's been a lot of fun. It's been kind of exciting because, like you said, they match you up with people that you might not have you might not have picked them out based on the title. Right. And then the matches have been very good. And it feels almost like you're meeting old friends. And it's it's very exciting to know that out there in America, somewhere are these people that you connect with on this very deep level. And it, it just yeah. gives you kind of, I don't know, there's so much bad news coming at us. And this is like a piece of good news. It's like, creativity, originality, kindness, inventiveness is still alive and well in America. <laughs> and it's and it's quite the community as yeah. well because it's it's really one of the great things that I've seen is, you know, some one of my other guests who was on at, at one spot other 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 podcasters were sharing how excited they were that he was on their show. And I was like, "Oh, yeah, he was on my show too. He was awesome. You're going to have so much fun." So <laughs> It's that's yeah. that's kind of the way it feels by by getting a by getting in, involved in Podmatch by getting involved in all the other communities for podcasters. It's really wild what what's out there. So I am the sky. The sky really is the limit on this format. So I'm just really excited to have you here. And so before we jump into your your own personal origin story, tell us a little bit about Beyond Sight that comes out this month. Yeah, so Beyond Sight, the the kind of the first blurb is in scenic Saratoga Springs, which is where I live. It's ghosts of a dark capitalist past awaken and challenge a young woman's powers. Mm. So Julie Sykes is a young woman with long repressed supernatural powers. And she's inextricably drawn to this man named Damien Quinn. And at first, they just kind of on a lark decide to investigate this haunted house, which it turns out it was built by a, a black family back in the 1890s. It's a beautiful Victorian, but it's fallen into disrepair. And the family has fallen into misfortune and the last owner is dead. And mm. this white city council is trying to knock it down to put up a new store, but the house won't go down. So mm. these two young people investigate and Damien becomes possessed by what they think might be the spirit of the last person who lived there. So mm. there's a mystery in here. And there's also a mystery about what happened to Julie's father. He died when she was only four and her mother won't talk about it. And she can't find pictures of him on the internet. And so there's another subplot here. And that I had a lot of fun weaving in pieces of real Saratoga Springs history from the Gilded Age. Nice. Very cool. Yeah. Very cool. So was this something that uh, you knew that just based on the history of Saratoga Springs that you really wanted to make sure that that was your setting or was it something that you started, you started already with the story and then you realized like based on, based on the history of Saratoga Springs, that this could be the perfect backdrop for it. Yeah, actually I, I think what happened is I was thinking of a different novel originally. There's a lot of wonderful pieces of history in Saratoga Springs and a lot of ghost tours and our our history museum has a, a lot of this stuff detailed. So I was actually researching another family. And then I stumbled across this guy, Henry Hilton, who mm. was this 
not related to the the current Hiltons, the Hilton Hotel chain, a right. different Hilton. But he was actually the fourth richest man in America, like right after the Astors and the Vanderbilts. Oh, and wow. the way he came into his fortune was very strange. The the fortune actually belonged to a to this guy A. S. Stewart, who actually I think he started one of the first department stores in New York City, and he oh, wow. had amassed this great fortune. And he met he and his wife couldn't have children. They had had two children who died. And so they met this man, Henry Hilton, who at that time was only a 25-year-old lawyer. And mm-hmm. their relationship got very close. And this Hilton guy kind of became like their surrogate son. So mm. when Stuart died, he left almost all his money to Hilton. Or he didn't actually leave it all to Hilton, but he left Hilton in charge of his businesses. And then the wife oh. signed all the businesses over to him. So he ended up with the whole thing. And wow. he moved to Saratoga Springs. He had renovated this Grand Union Hotel. It was a million-dollar renovation back in the 1890s. So that's like a billion dollars or something today. You know, it's insane. Mm-hmm. And then he banned Jews from entering. And this Whoa. created a, a sensation across the nation. Yeah. He also built these six crazily ostentatious mansions in the region that is now the campus of Skidmore College. And when he died, he had very little money left. And the <coughs> nobody, his children did not move into those mansions. They were abandoned and they all rotted or burned to the ground. Wow. So wow. it makes you wonder. And the other issue, the other really great mystery in here is that the body of his benefactor, Stuart, mm-hmm. was stolen from his mausoleum two years after he died and they never found the body. <laughs> oh man. So I that's, had to oh, get that story. Isn't that great? That's so cool. It, it's <laughs> those, those moments, those sort of like those legendary moments and everything remind me of kind of like the opening of not the very beginning, but the, the scene in um, Raiders of the Lost Ark where they're mm. talking about, how the Nazis had discovered Tannis and talking about the staff of Ron and basically just like lay, laying out the map of what it is that they're looking for, how powerful the Ark of the Covenant is, everything like that. And just those sort of moments, like when, when you have characters really just kind of like learning this sort of lore, I'm such yeah. a sucker for that. Yeah, so like yeah. learning that it was just like, how can you weave that into a story like that? And yeah. just, Oh, it just sounds like you had so much fun putting yes, that together, you know, like I having did. all that information at your fingertips, like that's got to be just like, what can I do with this? It's like getting a new toy. Yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and, and the whole book started with, I don't know why I was just kind of noodling around. I've always wanted to write a ghost story. I really love ghost stories. I I've, yeah. I've watched probably every, you know, and I like ghost stories as opposed to, I mean, I like horror, but yeah. ghost stories are like a different brand. They're not psychological. Quite, they're more psychological, right? And I'm I'm less interested in the demon subplot than and the evil ghost plot, mm-hmm. although there are some evil spirits in my book, but oh, yeah. I'm more interested in the somebody who's trapped and why mm-hmm. are they trapped and how can we release them? And yeah. uh, so I began the book by actually just writing kind of like a like my theories about why some ghosts are orbs and some appear as people and some you can hear and some you can't hear like why are they all manifesting in these different ways yeah and i started sort of sketching out sort of the world 
where you have answers to all those questions. And I had no plot. I was just writing these notes and I was like, what am I going to do with this? What's my plot? Mm -hmm. And then the plot kind of came along later. And then I was really glad that I had done all that kind of prep work. Yeah. You lay the groundwork. Yeah. Like it's, you you had, you had a place to go with that. And that's really like, that's something that I've always felt when it comes to any sort of like exposition or backstory or anything like that. It's just like, that's something you keep in your pocket. And, and when you, when you bring in your characters and when you do all this and everything, then you start just kind of bringing it out a little bit and it's like kind of feeding it out a little bit, just a little bit here, here and there, little, almost like breadcrumbs. And then, and then finally it was just like, you get that big reveal and, Oh, that's great stuff. It's like, I, I told you, like, I'm, I'm a sucker for those kinds of stories. I have like that real, that great underlying mythology and backstory that you can you can take and and have fun with so i i am so excited for you and to have this book and everything out there so yeah so you have like a background of over 30 years of of teaching writing plus Mm -hmm. you have how many books now do you have do you currently have i think i've got this will be my fourth book so i've got my first novel is uh, blue woman burning Mm-hmm. And then I have Against the Grain, both the beautiful paper, hardcover, beautiful paperback, and then a, a little book of short stories. And these are sort of my most experimental writings. Um, they're, they're stranger. That's why they're called Strange Appetites. More surreal, but maybe a little harder to read. So I, I keep them very short because I figure mm. I, I don't want to, I don't want to, I mean, I I don't want my reader to have to work that hard for that long. Makes sense. (laughs) But I want to give them things that are thought-provoking. So my novels tend to be, I don't know if you would say more loosely written, but more excessively written to really, to kind of, I want people to have that experience that we all had as children, where you read a book and you just get pulled in Mm -hmm. and you can't put it down. But I don't, but I also wanted to have deeper things to think about. So I always try to not just develop the character, but the character within the the context of the culture. So that nice. Yeah. Very nice. Uh, And I I think I I pull it off, you know, so, you know, like I I admire people like Gertrude Stein and Virginia Woolf, but, but Mrs. Dalloway is really hard to read. Mm-hmm. And I think my books are not hard to read. They're, I think they're easy. They're engaging and thought provoking. That's terrific. That's terrific. So, mm-hmm. so let's go back to the very beginning of it all, because one of the things that I like to talk about on this show is what I call the lightning bolt moment. And that's that moment in time when you kind of experience something or read something, meet someone, see something, and it just kind of makes you want to say like, Ooh, that's what I want to do. That's the you're feeling it almost like pulling you in that direction. What it is that I, that's what I want to be. That's the kind of person that I want to be. What was yeah. it about writing that grabbed your attention in the first place? Well, there are kind of two moments in my life. One was I was in second grade mm-hmm. and my parents were both English professors and they loved to travel. So they, we had just spent a year in Germany, in German schools, and I had learned to read and write in German as well Mm -hmm. as English. When I came back to the United States, I was very confused because, you know, I in German is pronounced E or Mm -hmm. I. And and so I I was just, my spelling was crazy, apparently. So so the school very discreetly hooked me up with a tutor. They didn't tell me why. And, you know, she was, we sat together and 
she was trying to explain vowels to me. And I was like, what? <laughs> and then she said, you know, never mind, just write a story. And I oh, was yeah. like, oh, oh my God, I can write a story. Like my mother mm-hmm. had read the classics to us every night. And, you know, it was always devastating when something happened that you didn't want to have happen. And right. so this thought that like I could be the author and I could decide what happens was mind blowing and very empowering too. Yeah. So I, I started writing right away. I think my first story was actually a ghost story now that I think about it. And then immediately kind of ran into my first writer's block, even at the age <laughs> of what seven, you know, Welcome. like, <laughs> how do you write this thing? Yep. But this, the second big moment, then I had a lot of writing that I did. I did a lot of writing and then a lot of doubt. But the moment when I really said, I want to be a writer and I don't care how hard it is was mm-hmm. after I had graduated from college and I was writing one of the stories that's it's the last story in this book called The Spiral Staircase. Mm-hmm. And I was just laboring on every word. And I thought, this is the hardest thing I've ever done, mm-hmm. but I can't think of anything I would rather be doing. That's right. You know, and then since then, there's, again, a, a history of doubt and, you know, needing to earn a living and, you know, uh, we're trying to get published and not getting published and, you know, doubt, more doubt, lots of quitting. Mm-hmm. And then finally, when I hit like 48, I just, it was almost like I just surrendered to the writing gods. I just said, mm-hmm. I don't know where this is going. I don't think, I don't know if I'll ever get my books out there, but I need to do this. I don't know why. I, I know that there's plenty of writers out there, and but I need to do this. And so yeah. I'm going to come hell or high water. That's great. That's just, yeah, mm-hmm. just at some point, you just kind of make that vow to yourself and yeah. say like, I, you know, like, am I going to, am I going to be like a New York Times bestseller? It's not in our control to say right. whether or not that's going to happen. But yeah. we can at least put ourselves in the position where we can, or we can get the work out there. Now, whether or not people actually go ahead and, and make enough purchases to put you on those lists, who knows? But to not do it at all, that's the true failure right there. And yeah, so as, and long I- as, as long as you keep pushing, as long as you keep on getting your work out there, you're not failing. You are succeeding because you're doing it. Right. And I think for a long time, when I was younger, my reasons for writing had to do with ego gratification. Like I wanted to prove to people that I was brilliant, or mm. I wanted to be loved, or I wanted to be famous. And when when I finally gave myself over to writing, it was like, I'm not writing for any of those reasons. In fact, probably I don't really want to be famous. I don't think I would enjoy that experience at all. Mm-hmm. I'm writing because of the quality it brings my life. And because of these kinds of interactions, like we're having this great talk because of writing. Right. And, and this is my favorite way to interact with people. So I'm just really writing because I I love my writing groups. I love to do readings. I love Mm -hmm. to exchange thoughts with people about things we, you know, that we're excited about and that inspire us. I mean, it's a great place to spend your life. Yeah. And even though it's looked at as like a solitary job, because at the end of it all, it really is just you and your computer or you and your pad or, you know, like you and your typewriter, however you do it, having a community of like-minded people that understand what you're going through, Mm -hmm. that means all the difference in the world. It's solitary, but at the end of the day, you know, like you're only 
you're only putting yourself in solitary when you're actually doing the work. But yeah. there is so much more to it than just there's so much more to writing than just writing. So yes, and some of it's very collaborative. Like when you have a writing group, you know, you're not you you do those first drafts alone, but then you share them and you get feedback and you talk with people and you read books and you get ideas and you go for mm-hmm. walks. So so an awful lot of writing is actually not solitary, you know, mm-hmm. and that's the nice part. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I I remember one of my favorite quotes of all time is from Paul Schrader, the writer of Taxi Driver, who said the only reason why people get into the arts is because they have no choice. Yeah. And yeah. That's that's yeah, that's where we are. It's like, you know, writing in a, in its own weird way kind of chose us to right. to do it. And yeah. so it's up to us to see that through. We have a responsibility to do it. And yeah. and to keep on getting that work out there, no matter what, like you said, you went through various means of getting your work out there. Mm-hmm. Now it's just, but you didn't quit. You, I mean, you didn't quit completely. You know, you, you <laughs> stepped away from it a little bit. You recharged, yeah. you got back into it and you pushed on and here you are, right. you know, four books right. now and, and you've gotten 30 years worth of teaching for a whole other, a couple generations worth of writers that are ready to, ready to do the same thing. So that's, yeah, that's yeah. a pretty remarkable feat right there. Yes. And I, I did quit writing a lot and, but you know, my friends, whenever I say, that's it, I'm never writing again. They were like, Oh yeah, right, sure. Huh? <laughs> We've seen this before. Yep. But a friend of mine, B.H. Uh, Epitus, who's, who's published 12 books, probably more with some of the big presses like Bantam and and people like that. But Mm -hmm. she never, she said, I never have writer's block. I've never quit writing, but she really understood that the process of writing, that there are different stages and there are stages where you're not necessarily writing, you're not inventing new work. You're revising Mm -hmm. old work or maybe you're just taking a break and you're sort of filling the well by reading something new or going traveling and you're looking for inspiration and you're sort of filling the well mm-hmm. and then things start start to bubble up, but they, they come in their own time. You know, you can, I, the other day I thought I better get to work in writing something new. Cause when I get done with all these promoting all these books, I, I'm sort of worried about the blank page again. So I sat down to try to, I had some ideas, sat down to try to sketch them out. And like my brain was just like, Nope, that's, we're not, <laughs> we're not in the generating place right now. Yeah. So I, been there. I learned to been just there quite a few that. times. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You don't force it. You give it a try and then you do something else. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I definitely have been, have been with that. It's been five years now since part two of my, of my own YA sci-fi trilogy has been out there, mm-hmm. although it's currently with a new publisher, but that new publisher will only, you know, get going with releasing book one after part three is finished and five years later, it's still like in the process. So thankfully, thankfully that, you know, like they're the deal that we have and everything, it's going to, it's very motivating for me to kind of push forward and get what I need to do done because I have a responsibility to them to, to get, to get that done. So, so take us to the inspiration and the moment really when that first book was, was, was ready to go. It was that story was in you. It was ready to come out. Tell us, tell us about that first one. 
the very first novel, Blue Woman Burning, this one. Yeah. Yep. This, this has a very tortured history. I think I wrote the, the seminal story for this when I was 23 years old. Wow. But I didn't publish it until 20 years later. Mm. So, and it, in that time, it went through many, many, many iterations. So I had written a story that I really didn't understand. That was the thing is I wrote the story and everybody loved it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I was fairly young and I didn't know what was missing. And I didn't, I kind of knew what it was about, but I didn't quite get it. And it just took me a long time to understand the material. Mm. And I think I had to learn and grow. And it ended up being, it was really an autobiographical, it's magic realism in that one, but it's, but it's semi-autobiographical. So in that one, it, you know, the, the description is on the Altiplano between uh, Chile and Bolivia, Fallon's family witnesses their mother magically disappear. The inexplicable nature of their loss marks each family member in a different way. For Fallon, it is the first step toward adulthood. For her brilliant and troubled older brother, it is an abandonment from which he never recovers. Mm. 13 years later, back in the United States, Fallon is about to conquer self-doubt and apply to medical school when another mysterious event shatters her reality. The crisis catapults her across the country on a quest to find the truth. What she Mm. discovers changes everything. Nice. So. I it took me a long time to understand that the novel was about three people, mm-hmm. the mother figure, the daughter and the brother, and that these three people were triangulating in this certain way that was kind of a trap for everybody. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And once you got once you had that story cracked, you're able to get it out there and everything and you were able to really print it. Did you print out the pages? when you were all finished? Oh my gosh. I, you know, I wrote so many versions of this book that yes, there are many, many printed copies. I just recently threw a bunch of them away and mm-hmm. there were many versions, many different printed copies. Many people workshopped them. I even had an agent at some point and they sent it around and I got some very good, you know, favorable rejections. Right. And it, it, there was a certain point where the agent said, I think you need to rewrite this one more time. And I had just had a baby and I just thought I can't. I don't know. I don't know how to fix this. So, you know, I think the first book is the hardest. I I like to think of this is not really my first book. This is my first, second, third, fourth, fifth, and sixth book (laughs) all rolled into one. That sounds familiar. Yep. Yeah. 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 um, The other ones were, went, came faster, you know, that uh, they didn't take me 20 years to figure out. So I think it, you know, each book is different. The process is different. It doesn't, I was asking the other writer, don't you think it gets easier? And they said, no. <laughs> so. I well, no, because it. like, like that first book, like you said, you know, about 20, you know, 20 years worth of, you know, dwelling on it and then, you know, working on it and then, you know, figuring out what you wanted to do with it and then writing it and then rewriting it and then rewriting it and then getting those edits and then rewriting and then getting the feedback from workshops mm-hmm. and then rewriting mm-hmm. that and just going, getting feedback from publishers and rewriting that, you know, so it's like, all of that, yeah, that's you know, that's a whole lot of work. That's about you know, twenty years worth of work. Once it's out there, and it start, and you know, everyone else you know starts reading it and everything. Mm-hmm. Their basic response is, "Okay, what else you got?" Yeah, and they're not going to wait twenty years for that next. Right. So <laughs> right. yeah, it does get harder right. because you got to take all of that experience that you just did and condense it 
into the slight, smallest bit of time possible. So that right. way you can make those deadlines because now all of a sudden that's a new thing that's introduced to your life. So, right. Right. Yeah. So, so tell us about the moment when they're like, what, what, so what did you wind up doing with, with blue woman burning? Was it, was there a publisher that picked it up? Did you go? Yes. Well, it? finally, yeah. I, I, again, kind of a painful process. I got picked up by a very small press Mm-hmm. But there was something like it was the publisher. There, there was some weird, like I, I don't know. She, she's kind of acted like she hated me, and I started to become very, very uneasy in the mm. process of going through it. We, we got through all the way the editing process. We got all the way through the book design, the paper design, but the last moment, she wanted to publish the book so that the front page would say, you know. Blue Woman Burning by Lolly Davidson, edited by, and then they put the editor's name on it. And I was just like, what? Why? That's weird. No, nobody does that. Like, why are you doing that? And she she could not explain it. And I, I and here I've been waiting my whole life for this. And I mm-hmm. just had to do this moment of truth of like, are you going to let it go out that way just because you're so desperate to get it published? Or like, or how are you going to feel? And I, and I thought every time I open the book and I see edited by, I'm going to think it's, it's going to make me feel ashamed. It's going to be, feel, it's, it's going to be like, like it was fixed by this person. You know, right. Like, like I couldn't, it, like, right. Like I couldn't write it myself. And mm-hmm. you know, all books go through editors. Like, yeah. it, so I went to her and I said, we, I need to know, are you going to take this name off? Of the, she had it on the copyright too. Are you going to take this name off of it? And she kept dancing around. And finally, I said, "We cannot go forward until you tell me that you're going to take this name off the front page." At mm. which point, she dropped me. Wow! So, like, take a knife and stick it right in my heart and twist. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think, "Wow, I must have done some terrible things in a past life." <laughs> Because <laughs> you know, like, why is my karma so messed up around writing? That's not car. That's not karma. That's standing up for yourself, though. I guess that yes. that is standing up for yourself. Like that is something that I have never heard that before. Yeah, I've never right. heard that sort that that before. And then all of a sudden, it, it's like I've seen maybe one other instance of someone putting like the 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 name of the editor on the front, and when yeah. I when I read that and you know, like, and I'm not going to throw them under the bus or anything like that. I'm not going right, to give them their name, right, right. but whoever, whoever that, whoever claimed the role of editor was not an editor because yeah. it was one of the sloppiest pieces of work that I think I've ever seen. I would, yeah. I, again, I'm not going to name call that person, but right. wow. Like it was yeah. so yeah, not even like, you know, why why would there you know be be an editor you know like there so i, I, I i'm yeah, still like strange. i'm still but that's like that's a that person you know self-published you know that's fine like they want to they they were the ones making the call on that right they wanted right. to give that that editor credit fine good for them but that's for a, for a small press <laughs> for any sort of press to really do that yeah, it's unheard of. I mean, the only time you ever see that is in an anthology or an academic work. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. yeah. 
Because there has to be someone there to kind of like oversee everything. So that person would absolutely be the editor. And that person should get that sort of credit. But so then I got then a friend of mine said, you know, I've been working with this press. It's a hybrid publisher, Red Penguin Books. Why don't Mm -hmm. you send your work? She's looking for new books. Why don't you send it? And she loved my book so much that she said, I want to publish this and I want to do it as I want it to be our first traditionally published book. Uh, or nice. I guess it was, you know, this is, we're going to start a new imprint called Emperor Books and, um, and you're going to be the inaugural uh, author. And oh, that's great. Yeah. So, and she's just been so generous and full of light and I don't know how she does what she does. She publishes a lot of books and, and she's, you know, sincere. And so, yeah, yeah. that was, so I got, I finally got, you know, my reward. <laughs> Oh, and then, great. but she was like, and the only thing though, is we need to have three books. And I thought, well, I happen to have two other books. I had just, you know, that I had, that I'm, I was just finishing converting a screenplay into a novel. Nice. And then I had this beyond sight. I had actually written a version of it 10 years ago and I knew that I could rewrite it. So I was able to say, yes, I've got three books. Let's go. And then, then it turns out I was a little worried about like what happens when you finally get a publisher? Do you become more motivated or do you get so scared that you clam up? Mm-hmm. Uh, but I tur- it, for me, it turned out to be incredibly motivating and uh, mm-hmm. it really made me able to take myself seriously as a writer and set aside the time that was needed. And I've been going strong ever since, you know, I just, I have a really good work ethic at this point about nice. writing. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's terrific. That is terrific. And so, so, so Emperor Books, that was, that was the. Yes. Stephanie Larkin is the publisher, the head penguin. The (laughs) umbrella is Red Penguin Books, but then the imprint is Emperor Books. That's great. That's great. So, so take us to that moment then that every, that every writer who has been just kind of picking away at their own stories is Mm -hmm. yearning for. And that's that moment when you open up the package and there is your book staring you, staring you down. Yeah. And you get to pick it up out of the package and you get to hold it in your hands. We never, yeah. you know, that, that's a feeling you never forget. So it is a great feeling. Take us to that it, moment. Like, well, you know, again, I never have pure joy. I'm always a little bit of a mix. So it, it's joy and terror. You know, it's like, what if. I open it and there's a mistake on the first page that I missed. You know, that, <laughs> yep. like, I don't know if I can look at it kind of thing. And I don't know, a lot of stress about getting, getting it out. Oh, you know, what's really stressful <laughs> having to promote yourself. Yes. Yep. I, yep. you know, who, I, who, I, I mean, there might, oh, there might be some people who like to do that, but I think most of us don't. Yeah. And we're also told by society that we shouldn't, that it's blowing your own horn. It's bragging. Mm-hmm. And then if you're a woman, those le- those messages are even louder. So, you know, one part of my brain is going, you know, don't promote yourself. Shut mm-hmm. up. This is so <laughs> rude. Yep. And then another part's going on. Oh, my God, you've got to promote yourself. You've done all this work. You've got to you've got to get it out there. You know, how so else are people going to know? Right. How else are people going to know who you are? You know, like that's. Yeah. I've read marketers who said the thing to think about, the way to think about it is not like, oh, let me impose my book on you, but to think, 
I've got something that you need and want and love, and I'm doing you the favor of helping you find it. That's great. So, uh, yeah, I like that attitude. I try to cultivate that. That's a good, that's a good way to look at it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. the so the other so the other books you the other ones you had been working on for a period of time as well, yes. Um, so that so the fact that that you had those not quite at the ready but at least like you know ready yeah. to present for consideration. Yeah. Um, what what was the response to to those from uh, from your publisher? Well, she's loved them all. I think she may love, she has never said this to me, but I think she may love my first book the most, but yeah. they're, because they're different, they're all different. Like you're supposed to write the same kind of books. I, I can't do that. I'm yeah. sorry. I, I'm, I'm, I like to explore things. I like difference. I think I mentioned in my profile that I was sort of diagnosed late in life as having ADHD. I didn't mm. know I had it and I probably, I wasn't that crippling a version of it. But it, you know, it did sort of plague me. And once I figured, once I was diagnosed, I thought, oh my God, of course. But the thing about people who have ADHD is we like new stuff. <laughs> and not only that, but we also kind of like look back at, at everything that went on. It was just like, why didn't anyone see it there or there or there right. or there? And then all of a sudden you can think of like, all of a sudden countless examples. Cause like my, when I got tested for it initially, the doctor that, that I worked with said that I didn't have it. Mm-hmm. He said that, you know, based on everything that, that, that I had told them, he said that, that your, you know, brain developed, you know, developed, you know, developed just fine as you were growing mm-hmm. up. And mm-hmm. he said, what you're dealing with right now is a combination of anxiety, depression, what was it? Self-doubt mm-hmm. and stress. Mm-hmm. And it was just like, self-doubt and fatigue. There it is. The, the, right. Yeah. So those, those four elements, those were my computer virus that he was saying that was slowing my yeah. brain down. And yeah. so it's just like, all right, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. But then, at, you know, like afterwards, after kind of mulling over that, I was just like, well, wait a second. What about the time when I was dealing with this and this right. and this and this? Right. So, right. you know, I, I, I've not gotten myself tested again since, but who knows? You know, like it's, yeah. but it's definitely something that, you know, that's, that's, a lot that's the funny of, thing about it. It yeah. plagues you. <laughs> it does. But, you know, a lot of creative people have it. So it's, you know, these things are labeled disorders. They're not disorders. They are mind types mm. that have skill sets. And yeah. they work in some arenas very well and other arenas not so well. And, mm-hmm. and creativity I think you require a kind of a, I think ADHD people with ADHD tend to have fairly fast mind. It's not really a deficit of attention. It's an over, it's like you have too much attention. You pay attention to everything and you can't filter things out. Yeah. Well, that's, that's anxiety provoking because you, you're, you're perceiving a million things at the same time, but it's also why we can be very flexible thinkers and why mm-hmm. we can be creative is because we can jump around very fast. And you need to do that, we that can. as creative. Yeah. yeah, that we absolutely can. And so, yeah. so the short story collection that you have, is that also part of the imprint or is that something? Um, yes, you- yes. Uh, and, and that really kind of delves into those different mindsets. You know, there's a lot of psychological, the very first story 
So the opal makers, it says, when they cracked my sister's ribs open and slid the curved bone blades back under her skin to repair her damaged heart, they found me tucked inside. Up until then, I had not known how her ribs cradle gouged me. You might think it's hard to breathe when you're living inside someone else. It is. But surprisingly, you adjust. That's awesome. <laughs> what a grabber right there. That's Thank so cool. Thank you. <laughs> this is like wait a minute (laughs) how do you adjust like right Right. and there's another one in there that i really think this story probably is about having adhd but i didn't know that when i wrote it yeah and it's about it's called hitting the wall Mm -hmm. it begins the first time cassandra passed through the wall she hadn't meant to so and it's all about this person sort of always bashing people's boundaries by accident. Yeah. And, you know, realizing that people are reacting badly to that and knowing that she's got to stop. But in the end, sort of feeling sad that, you know, why, why, why can't we connect? You know, why? Mm-hmm. So, and I thought, you know, this is something I think that is true of people with ADHD they tend, we tend to blurt things out, you know, like we're thinking a thought and we kind of have to say it before we forget it. And so we tend to blurt, which makes people feel, you know, we're like more frank than people are used to. And that can be disturbing to other people. But to me, it's really refreshing when I meet somebody else who's a little bit more candid than the average run of the mill person. Like I love my students. We have quite a few students who are on the autism spectrum and most of them I really love because they are unfiltered. They say what they mm. think. And that suits me. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that is so great. Yeah. So so when did the, when did you make the decision to go into teaching writing? I always my my both my parents were professors, so they had really modeled teaching for me as a as a wonderful profession, you know, a profession that was every day was different and you were helping people and you were sharing things that matter to you. And writing matters so much to me that I, I kind of knew that I knew fairly early, you know, by the age of, you know, like about three years out of college, I was like, yeah, I really, I need to be a teacher. This is, I had sort of resisted because I didn't want to do exactly what my parents did. Right. But again, finally, it was like, I really can't think of anything else that I'm a suited for and b really want to do. Mm. So, you know, I, I was lucky. I went to uh, University of Albany. I, I graduated from Oberlin College and then went to the University of Albany for my doctorate. And they really focused a lot on the pedagogy of teaching, which is wonderful nice. because a lot of literature in the olden days, you know, a lot of literature, PhDs, it was really you just focus on literature and, and knowing everything there is to know about literature, but not so much about teaching. Mm. So I, I was really glad to get all this background on how the mind works and how people learn and, and how best to teach writing, because a lot of damage gets done if you don't understand the writing process and try to force people to do a process that doesn't work for them. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So how so how has it been like, you know, about over 30 years now of teaching? What have you have you felt like you know, like what have your your students themselves like what have they what have they been? How have they been as your as your students? Well, you know, it's a mixed bag. I, I have you I gotten really... anyone. Uh, I'll, I'll rephrase. 
have have the other have some of your students kind of approached you in terms of you know really being very passionate about writing and wanting to kind of move forward in the direction that you have yes yes they do it's not not a lot of them i would say about you know three per like i teach you know incoming freshmen Mm -hmm. uh, composition but my 200 level fiction writing class i would say when you ask how many of you are intending to go on with this? You know, you get maybe one to three hands go up. Okay. So a lot of people are taking creative writing because, you know, it's fun and and not that many are really wanting to go into it. But I would say, you know, I what I love about teaching, especially writing, is that you get to, I, I mean, I guess you have to be interested, inherently interested in people, which I am. So yeah. You, you get to know so many people again in this quite this in quite an intimate way where they are expressing sort of their deepest desires and fears and needs and wants, um, which is I always invite them to do that. And I never make them write about things they don't want to write about. And so you get to know them way better than if I was t- teaching math, for example. Yeah. And then it's also wonderful to kind of perennially be teaching 18 year olds because so I'm always teaching 18 and 19 year olds you know, over these 30 years and they're, they're changing. It's always the same age student. They're changing, but I'm always getting introduced to the new youth culture. And so when I retire, I'm going to miss that because I, there's all these new words that you learn every year (laughs) (laughs) and new technologies that I won't learn once I retire. Have you been able to share your works with, with the students? Yeah, I mean, I I make them aware of them, but you know, it would be unethical for me to assign my books. So oh, yeah, I don't do I don't do that. <laughs> yeah, that's smart. Yeah, but that's I do good, tell them about it. it. Yeah, I tell them about it, and I bring it in because I think it's inspiring to them to know that it's it's not all easy. Like this doesn't, you know, that there's a there's a struggle involved, you know. And, yeah. And here's what I was struggling with, and I think that gives them some strength and courage. Excellent. Excellent. And so as a teacher for, you know, for a few decades, for a few decades now, what is it that you would say would be say the first thing that they should do if they do approach you and say, I love writing. I have something in me. I need to get it out. What do you suggest is the first thing that they do? I think establishing a writing practice. So a, a ritual Mm-hmm. around it so and I, I used to hate being told this when I was in college you know they, they were like you have to write every day and that mm-hmm. was I don't know I just had I had trouble with that and I didn't write like that it was more like I wrote when I was inspired so it wasn't until later in life that it's like okay but establish a practice like the same time of day the same desk uh, a, a ritual to get going set the stakes low you know, so like say to yourself, I'm going to make, I'm going to come to my desk four days a week. I'm going to aim for seven days a week. But if I end up only coming to my desk four days a week, that's fine for a minimum of 15 minutes a day. And, Mm -hmm. you know, pick a time that if you catch a wind, you can go on for two hours, but if, but you don't have to, if it's a bad day and it's not flowing, you know, either do something else that's writing related um, or, take some notes on ideas that you have. I, I, I guess I also say to people, if you can't write it, write about it. So just start mm. note taking about it. Cause sometimes that's, it, it lowers the stakes. So lower your stakes, try to develop a pattern and a, and a set of rituals. And what happens is 
you know, the most powerful part of your brain, really, I mean, the, the most willpower will run out, passion will, will come and go. Nice. But habit is constant. So if you could establish a, a habit, what will happen is, you know, you come you at about seven o'clock. You know, for me, my writing time has has been, you know, seven to nine. So right. at about seven to nine, all of a sudden your brain starts going, where's, you know, where's my writing desk? You know, it, it just it will start <laughs> to arrive at the appointed time. Oh, that's great. I love that. Yeah. And you said, so just to make sure I had that right. If you can't write something, then write about what you're writing. Yeah, that has been very helpful to me. I, you know, I also started a, a visiting author series at the college campus. And one of my first guests was William Kennedy, who wrote Ironweed. Mm-hmm. And it was so heartening to me to hear that he said that he wrote, he, he sometimes writes notes on his novels for like two years before he even starts the novel. Like, and he wow. will amass a stack of notebooks this tall. Wow. So yeah, it can include things like, you know, like outlines. some people outline, some don't, or just you, you've got an idea for a scene and it's the climax and you're like, yeah. you know, like, but, but I've got to write the first chapter first before I write the climax. And I'm like, no, mm-hmm. you don't, you can write yeah. the climax and then you can write about, well, maybe I need to add this character. Maybe I need to add that. It's just sort of talking to yourself out loud on paper. And what happens nine times out of 10 is that you'll slide into writing the scene. As you write about it, you'll start to try it out and you end up writing it. That's great. That's It reminds me of, of something that one of my favorite writers out in Hollywood, the late Larry Cohen, what he mm. would do is he was one of the most prolific writers in all of Hollywood. And the reason why... And he would knock out like a draft a week. It was yeah. his work, his work, his work ethic was absolutely outstanding and someone that mm-hmm. I aspire to be like. And hopefully when it comes to writing this, the, the, the next draft of this book that I'm working on, I can kind of take what he offered. And the main thing that he did was he would start by writing the scene that made him want to tell that story in the first place. And then yeah. he would say, okay, where, what led this character to be where they are right now and what's going to happen next. And then by combining those elements, he was able to knock out about a draft a week because he figured out exactly what it was that made him want to tell that story. And then he wrote it out and then he filled everything in. He got everyone to where they need to be. They got him up to speed. And then afterwards they're like, okay, now let's see what happens after that scene. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think the important thing to remember is, you know, you hear about other people's processes and you think, well, that doesn't work for me. And that's, it's like, right. Cause it's you, you know, right. you have to find out what your process is and what works for you. Exactly. Uh, so you try somebody else's process uh, uh, because you never know it might work for you, but if it doesn't, you know, try something else. So, yeah. Uh, you know, be, wh- I guess be attuned to what, where your energy goes, you know, yeah. if you're, if you get excited about something, follow that. If it's feeling like a huge burden, try it a different way. Exactly. Yeah. Now, sometimes you do just have to muscle through the, like, you're just like, so there are moments where it's like, you're like, I don't know what to do. And it's painful. <laughs> right. And exactly. sometimes you do just have to kind of wrestle those 
demons down. You know, it's not all fun. It's not all fun. <laughs> no. And though, and those scenes like they can be, they can feel like a slog to get through. Yeah. But the trick is to make sure it doesn't read like a slog to get through. Right. Right. So, yeah. And that's where revision comes in. So I always say oh, to yeah. people, you know, Annie Lamott, I don't know if I'm allowed to say a swear word here, but you know, go for it. She has an essay called shitty first drafts. Yep. And, and she talks about, I think it's, she talks about the shit bird sitting on your sh- shoulder. And yeah. so, you know, getting, getting used to the idea that like, write it down bad. So even if you feel uninspired, go ahead and write it out. It, you know, yeah. it probably will be bad. It's okay though. Cause you'll come back later and you'll fix it. Yeah. And you know, writing is a, it's many, many layers of things. Sure is. Yep. I've, I've said this many times to other writers. I said, don't be afraid to write crap. Right. Because what you get, you know, like, yeah, it may, it may wind up being crap, but at the same time, you have to start somewhere. You right. can't just start. And then all of a sudden you have something great. When, when people do national novel writing month, which I will be doing this November, which I'm yeah. looking forward to other people doing as well. Yeah. Yeah. Too many people think that, you know, like that, okay, I go from November 1st to November 30th, I keep writing at the end of November 30th, I'll have a 50,000 word draft. That does not mean that on December 1st, you go to Amazon, you click publish. Right. (laughs) (laughs) It means that you have started something amazing. Now you got, you know, like put it down, celebrate, you got the first draft done, but you got work to do after that. So You know, that's the main thing that too many people don't realize. So do you prep before you do it? Like, do you outline first or do you really just take the idea and go run with it? In the case of, in the case of the first Excelsior book, Mm -hmm. I had that idea in my head really since 1992. The -hmm. character himself has been with me for that long. Mm -hmm. And uh, in 2008, that's when I decided I was going to finally write the book, write his story. And I knew where it started and I knew where it ended, but Mm -hmm. I had to figure out where it was going to take me. So I just basically just took that and ran with it. So there wasn't much in terms of prepping for this one. Mm -hmm. However, with this third book, Greater Glory, that's going to wrap up the whole trilogy, I needed to do some, a lot of prep time. I needed Mm -hmm. to figure this out because Mm -hmm. I did not want to leave any stones unturned when it came to ending a trilogy and right. trilogies are hard. You know, that's yep. it's a lot know. of information, a lot yeah. of plot lines. Oh yeah. Yeah. So where can, where can my listeners find you on social media? Well, I have a website, lollydavidson.com. I also have a Facebook page and an Instagram account. So my Facebook page is Lolly Davidson author. You'll find my personal page, but there's also more of a professional page. So LollyDavidson.com, L-A-L-E, Davidson.com. And then my the links to my books will be there. And you can also order the books through any bookstore because they are published on the Ingram Spark platform. So they, oh, can, they can always, you can always walk into a bookstore and say, hey, can you get this book as long as you have the ISBN number. Right. So beyond sight, you know, I'm going to have copies in hand and yeah. I'll be reading at the bookstore on Broadway in Saratoga. October 5th. And those will be the only place you can get the books until they show up on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and stuff. That's fabulous. And it's only a couple of days away, people. So you're listening, to, it. you're listening to this. You know, this is a, this is a very, very big moment. I am so thrilled for Lolly. It never gets old, does it? 
when when you're when you're releasing a new book. You, this is your fourth no. go round. And yeah, yeah. It's still like you still feel those. You still feel the you know the. I don't want to say anxiety. You just feel like the rush of it all. Yeah. Yes. It is, it's anxiety and rush, you know, like I, some of my favorite ghost stories on television are the Mike Flanagan series, you know, pretty yes. much everything he does. Oh yeah. And I, it's kind of fun to go, okay, here's my edition. You know, what do you think? <laughs> you know, it's fun to just join that club and, and try your hand at that thing that you've always admired. So. That's terrific. You know. And that's, that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful way to really kind of cap this, this whole discussion because yeah. what Lolly said, you know, like this is over 30 years of writing and she is consistently dropping some amazing, amazing tips about getting your, getting your work out there. And it really just kind of starts with putting yourself in front of either a pad or a typewriter or a computer or whatever it is and start working on it. If you are dry, if you feel like you're blocked for some reason, then start, like she said, talking about what the scene is about and just whatever you have to do, just get this story out there because there is a world that is waiting for it. There is a world that is, is ready for your stories. And in this, in this month of, supernatural elements we have the latest edition ready to go on october 5th so by all means get yourself a copy of beyond sight and enjoy the world of lolly davidson because it is one hell of a world to live in so for lolly davidson this is george soroy saying to all of you ever upward and i will see you next week Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Excelsior Journeys. I hope it was both inspiring and entertaining. Special thanks to Zach Comtois for providing new music for the intro and outro. Please take a moment to leave a rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoy the show, please share it with your friends and subscribe to your platform of choice by going to he'sgotit.com slash podcasts. While there, you can also fill out the application to be a guest, inquire about sponsorship opportunities, and click on the Buy Me a Coffee link if you wish to give your support to the show. All interaction is very much appreciated. If you have a question, comment, or suggestion for the show, please direct it to george at he'sgotit.com. <laughs>